Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. This is the Body of Christ Church, and you are listening to our program, From Darkness to Light, where we examine and reprove spiritual wickedness in today's world, as well as providing instructions on repentance for those overtaken in the sins of witchcraft and occult practices. Join us each week on our mission to fulfill the words written in the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 18 to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. We once light, now darkness. Before man and God, when Titans ruled the earth. The Titans were powerful, but their reign was ended by their own sons, Zeus, Poseidon, and Hades. and revered names in a pantheon of innumerable Greek gods and goddesses. But with the arrival of the one true God, the countless deities of the pagan world have all but disappeared, now relegated to the realm of myth and legend. And while time has faded these legends, they have found a new and enduring home 
in the teachings of Christianity. In fact, many Christians today would be alarmed to know just how many of the truths they accept as biblical facts actually have no basis in Scripture. But if many of the Judeo-Christian views of heaven, hell, life, death, even good and evil, are based on the corrupt teachings of the pagan world, then how can we look to these teachings as a guide to salvation? Join us today for another installment of From Darkness to Light as we use the biblical word of God and the teachings of the one true Lord Jesus to cast down the gods of Olympus forever. We give all praises to the Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ for another edition of From Darkness to Light as we deal with Pantheon and the birth of Christian mythology. We have a very interesting show for you tonight. It's going to be a very educational and eye-opening show if you listen and if you hear. So, once again, I'm your brother, Gadaiwan, bringing forth the word of the Heavenly Father. But as usual, we have a brother like no other who actually the the show title describes us all, but probably him more than anyone else because he used to be a servant of that darkness and very close to that darkness. But now he strives to grow closer and closer to our Lord Jesus Christ. So without further ado, I give you the brother Akrai. Shalom, Brother Godwin, and shalom to all the listeners, as always. It's a privilege and honor to be here for another installment of From Darkness to Light. And Pantheon, this was a show that was in the works for a great many days, months, and really over a year. But we wanted yeah. to do it at the proper time. And the reason why this was on our heart for so long is because so many times when we deal with teaching the Word of God, we encounter people who have strong, deep-rooted beliefs and opinions about the Bible, about heaven, about hell, about God, about the devil, about Jesus, and they would be really surprised to know how many of those deep-rooted beliefs they have are not based on biblical truth, meaning that they are not contained in the Scripture, that you can't open up the Bible and show where they're getting these information from, but if you venture outside of biblical truth and go into the world of paganism and the world of witchcraft and the world of many of the occult teachings, you would see just how much of that influence has found its way into the teachings that are now considered this false Christianity. The reason why it's important to put that disclaimer out there about the false Christianity is because there are some people who have turned away from the Bible and the teachings of the church just for that fact. When they look at the church, they say, wait a minute, this is paganism. This is, this is foolishness. This is the same thing that the ancient world was dealing with that the Lord overthrew them and destroyed them for, and they would be right to say that. So when you look in the churches of today, like in particular you look at the Catholic Church, and they have an entire assortment 
of different patron saints that go in the list into the hundreds. And each and every one of these so-called saints is given a denotation of their abilities. They're the patron saint of children. They're the patron saint of medicine. They're the patron saint of travelers. They're the patron saint of this, that, and the other. And it goes on and on and on forever. How is that any different than the ancient world where they had a pagan god who was a patron for different cities and different aspects of life all the way down to dreams, travel, architecture, music, philosophy, everything. There was no aspect of life that they did not touch. So the argument that, of course, that Catholics make is that, well, the patron saints were once alive, so that doesn't count because they're not gods. But if they were a little bit more versed on Greek mythology, they would put that many of the pantheon of Greek gods were believed to have started as mortals before they ascended. So the first thing we want to deal with, and this is just for people who may not be familiar with the show and who may not be familiar with the scriptures, we can't always assume that the ones who are out there listening are well-versed in the Bible. So we'll start by saying one thing. In the book of Exodus chapter 20, starting at verse 1, the Lord makes something very clear. And he says, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Why are we going there? Because as we're going through this show, we're going to be bringing out many aspects of paganism, many aspects of pagan beliefs, and many aspects of the pagan gods as they were worshipped in their time. And we're doing this to bring out the points of how much this influence has spread over into the churches and into the false Christianity of today. It's not done to uplift or deify or in any way magnify these names of old because these are the pagan gods of old who the Most High swept away through the teachings of the Bible. When and I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this. I'm glad that we're doing this um this show, Akira, because a lot of these things are the things that we grew up with. We grew up with these, these, as you say, Christian mythologies rather than with the scriptures, especially on hell and death. You know, we went to church that had the Bible, but we was told these, these mythologies, which we know now. And I think, you know, I'm going to make sure that I send this, this show out to you know, a lot of my Christian friends, I think they're going to be very shocked to hear the truth. I believe so. And even when you look at a lot of people's theories about how the world came to be, the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, tells you in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and that was the answer. So when you have, because I've heard people even in the church say over the years different things about, well, there's not that there's not other gods. It's just that 
the God of the Bible is the most powerful one, or he was the most powerful and he drove away the other gods, or different Hmm. things like that. And that's all foolishness, because when you read in the book of Deuteronomy, that's when he made it clear, above all things clear. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, and I'll start at verse 39. 39. And this is where the Lord is speaking. He says, see now that I, even I am he, and there is no God with me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. Neither is there any that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand take hold of judgment, I will render vengeance to mine enemies and will reward them that hate me. So you look at that, and the Lord is making it clear. There is no other. There is none else but me. None else. I got a scripture for you. This is This is Deuteronomy. The um, Deuteronomy, the fourth chapter, and the 35th verse. And it says, Unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none else beside him. So it's letting you know clear and plain from the, the, the magnificent works and wonders that the Most High showed, especially in Egypt and after the pantheon of gods that they had in Egypt. It was clearly showed that God was a God of night and day when he, he when he destroyed the sun god Ra, and it was darkness for three three days. Where was the sun god? He was powerless against the Most High's power. So it was clear through the demonstration of power of the Most High that there was none other God but the God of Israel. I'll read on. It says, Out of heaven he made thee to hear his voice. That it might instruct thee upon earth. He showed thee his great fire. That thou heardest his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved thy fathers, therefore he chose their seed after them. And brought thee out in his midst with his mighty power out of Egypt. To drive out nations from before thee greater and mightier than thou art. To bring thee in, to give thee their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Now, therefore, this day. Know therefore this day, and consider it in thine heart, that the Lord he is God in heaven above, and upon earth beneath, there is none else. All So the reason so when you look at that, the beautiful thing about those scriptures is that it's really no way around that. And Psalms ninety six, I have to go there. Psalms ninety six Verse 4 and 5, and it says, For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. So even though we play at the beginning of the show and you heard the intro to the show, and that was actually a clip taken from the movie Clash of the Titans, horrible movie, um, horrible (laughs) movie remake of an older movie, which was actually much better if you like fantasy, and that's relegated to the realm of fantasy. (laughs) But the the point being is that in the introduction of the show, they're going through, uh, it's a clip going through the history of the universe, and they're talking about gods and titans and Zeus and Poseidon and Hades and how they're raising up. And one of the things that it said is that how as they rose up, 
and created mankind, which is a lie because we just go into the scriptures so we know that the Most High, our God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the one that created mankind and created all things that consist in this world. But the point is, is that when you look at what the scripture says, it says, for all the gods of the nations are idols, which means that when they worshipped Zeus, when they worshipped Poseidon, when they worshipped Hades, when they worshipped all of them, these were just idols that they put up in their cities, idols of wood and stone with no breath in them like the scripture says. And the only reason why we're even going through their names and things like that is because when we're bringing this word out, we have to be clear about where this wickedness is coming from. So I'll address that. I'll address the scripture, which is Exodus chapter 23, so we can get a little bit of clarity on it. In Exodus chapter 23 and 13, the Lord warns the children of Israel. It says, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect, and make no mention of the names of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. So when the Mosiah was bringing us out and purified us in the land, he let us know that he was the only God and the other gods around, which were idols, he didn't want them to mention them. He didn't want them to speak of them, give them honor, praise, learn about them, how they operated, how to worship them, or anything of that nature, because they were taken to him to be sanctified. And when you look at the downfall of Israel and how we became corrupted, that's the reason why in the scriptures we see those names appear. Do we or do we not see the names of the other gods in the Bible, the Godwin? Yes, we do. And there's a reason for that, because some people think it's a contradiction where the scriptures tell us don't make mention of the names. There are even churches that we know where they get to a pagan name of a, a name of a pagan god in the Bible, they won't read it. They'll say blah, blah, blah. So they'll be like, do not sacrifice thy children to blah, blah, blah. It's not a joke. I'm dead serious. They will do that. You they read won't it in read your it. mind. It's too late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you're funny. Yeah. But they, that's what they'll do. They'll say blah, 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 where where you'll read in the scriptures where it says, do not cause sacrifice, thy, cause thy child to pass through the fire to Molech. They won't say Molech. So when you look at the Bible, those names are there for a reason. When you read about Molech, when you read about Chemosh, when you read about um, Jupiter, when you read about Diana of Ephesus, when you read about mm -hmm. Bacchus, all of those names appear in the Bible. And Jupiter is just the Roman Roman, the Roman name used for Zeus. Because remember, the Greco-Roman gods were the same. They just had different names. Zeus was, Zeus was Jupiter. Poseidon was Neptune. Hades was Pluto. So all of them had Roman counterparts. And that's how it went down. So when you read about those names in the Bible, they appear for a reason. And the reason why is so that in these days and times, we would be able to look back at the scriptures and see how these gods have traveled throughout the ages and have found a root in the world today, and more shockingly, such an enduring and lasting root in Christianity and the beliefs that many people have about God, which is and another thing. You said sorry, something interesting. You said something interesting at the beginning about how people say that, um, yeah, the God in the Bible, he's the most powerful God, but there's other gods. I remember this story with this uh, Nigerian guy who he has to work with, and um, he was speaking to another girl who was Nigerian as well. 
and she was talking about when she gets married, she's not going to deal with the the Nigerian gods. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? You got to deal with those things. So we was all talking about the Bible. It was like, well, there's only one God. It's like, no, because he was dealing with like some house gods or whatever. And like, you need these gods to bless your wedding. And that would go in as like, that's, we were both like the, the Nigerian girl and myself, like that's foolishness. But that's what he was saying. Like there, there are other gods that you have to give homage to and worship to besides the God that's in the Bible. So that belief is not fiction, it's fact. Exactly. Even when we went over the shows dealing with uh, Santeria and things of that nature, one of the heavily things that's heavily taught is that they say, okay, well, we're Christian now, and we've converted to Catholicism, so we have to give, we have to worship Jesus, but we're not going to get rid of the other gods that helped us out throughout our ancestry, which is foolishness like you brought out and I'm glad you brought out that point because people would not realize that what we're talking about is something that is actually happening now and not something that's a fable or made up. And when one of the things that's most one of the things that are most enduring about Greek mythology in particular that translates over into how people view the Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ and the scriptures and it's the saddest thing of all is the fact that when you look at the pantheon of Greek gods, they were petty, they were evil, they were ruthless, they were manipulative, they were lustful, they were vengeful, they were angry, they were hateful, and they did not represent any aspect of virtue or purity. And when you look at how people deal with the Most High, when good things happen in this world, there's never a mention of the Heavenly Father. It's always like, okay, well, Mother Nature did this, or there's a great day today, or, you know, there's prosperity coming because of the universe and because of the laws of attraction and different things like that. you got people that will not give the most high praise, honor, or glory for any of the good that happens in their life because they think that they attain that by themselves. But let something bad happen. Let an earthquake, hmm. a famine, or a plane crash or blow up mm-hmm. or anything like that. Now, all oh, God. why would God do this? Why did God allow that? Why did God do this? How could a loving God let a child die in a school shooting? They go bananas, and it's all God. But they don't mind. They're not mindful of them with any blessings. They're only mindful to even mention God when it comes to the evils that we see in our life. And why is that? Because that was how they viewed life in the Greco-Roman world with their gods. As a matter of fact, let's play the first clip of the night, and the first clip I want is actually the one with the fishermen. Now, this is also a clip from the first movie they released, uh, Clash of the Titans. And in this clip, you have a fisherman who's speaking about how the gods are plaguing the world. And he throws his net into the sea, pulls it out, but of course the net is empty because the gods have put a plague on the sea. So please, let's listen to the things that he says about the pagan gods, his gods that he worships, and we'll talk about how that relates to today. Another day, nothing caught on the reef. 
To whom do we direct our gratitude for this glorious bounty? Zero, please. Uh, Poseidon, Zeus, who do I thank, Barbara? Thank the men who provoke them. They crush my island. They put a plague on yours. They take from us what they want. We're their slaves. The gods gave us life. For that, we should be thankful. I'm tired of being thankful for scraps. I'm a fisherman. Perseus is a fisherman. They've even taken that away from us. Huh? What we are. Still, they want us to love them anyway. One day, somebody's going to have to make a stand. One day, somebody's going to have to say, enough. Okay. <laughs> so, he turns around. Who do I have to thank for this bounty? Because he's a fisherman and he can't find any fish. And then he goes on and says how the gods have cursed the sea. They haven't given him any food. They put a plague on another island. They give them pain, misery, and suffering. And still they want us to love them anyway. But one day we have to make a stand. One day somebody's going to have to say enough. And you look at it, and it's the same thing that people do today. Anytime things happen in their life, the first thing they say is, oh, God did this, God did that, God did the other, and he's the one that they pull all their wrath, all their anger, and their first frustrations against. They do not remember the patience of Job. They do not remember the forefathers of faith. They do not remember Hebrews 11, the Hebrew book of Hebrews, the entire 11th chapter, going through our forefathers of faith with all the afflictions that we suffered and things of that nature. But... When you look in the Bible, what was the main theme that was going on as far as the Heavenly Father and his relationship to the children of Israel? It was the fact that he was our father, He was, we were his beloved, and that he was being sanctified in the eyes of the children of Israel. And that's a theme that we use often on this show. And the reason why we use that theme often about being sanctified in the eyes of the Most High is because... When you look up the word sanctified, it means to cleanse or, or to make pure. So we ask the question often, why does the Most High, why does the Heavenly Father have to be sanctified in the eyes of the children of Israel? Well, it's, it's like what you've been saying. You know, they betray the Most High as some evil, wicked, bloodthirsty warmonger, hating, jealous. Even um, Oprah, Oprah Winfrey saying, oh, well, I don't want to um, be with a God that's jealous over me. So that's how they, I mean, even at the highest levels of media, the God of the Bible is portrayed as some evil, wicked being. So we have to show the goodness of the Mosai because people, not, they're not being told it at all. Exactly. So, when we talk about sanctifying the Most High, like a good example is when you look in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. In the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, this is when the Heavenly Father was dealing with the children of Israel and bringing us through the wilderness. And in the wilderness, we had many hardships. There were times we went places there was no food. There were times when there was no water. There were times when we were afraid of our enemies. There were times when there were plagues. There were times when there was death. All of these things happening while we're in the wilderness. But this is the reason why we suffered those things. The book of Deuteronomy chapter 8, and I'm starting at verse 1. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, 
that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread only, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. And thy raiment waxed not old upon thee, neither did thy foot swell these forty years. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. Therefore thou shalt keep the commandments of the Lord thy God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So you look at that, and the Lord has not given us, it's not, he's not like the pantheon of Greek gods, which they sit back playing, playing games and manipulating mankind, rolling dice for pain and suffering, or even with the fact that they didn't even believe in a true just system because the gods of Olympus, the Greek gods, were ruled by fates. The fate sat back with the fate of mankind rolling back and forth to see, okay, who's going to live this long, who's going to die early, who's going to have tragedy, who's going to have pain and suffering, who's going to have good, who's going to have bad. But when you look at the scriptures, the Most High dealt with true justice and judgment, and that's the reason why you look at what he was doing in the wilderness and even what he's doing today, bringing us through the wilderness of the people bringing us back to him and purging us of the wickedness that we have in the world today, he's still suffering us to hunger. He's still allowing us to hunger. He's still allowing us to thirst. He's still allowing us to know pain and suffering. But for the exact same reasons, for the exact same reasons, and I'll read it again. This is Deuteronomy 8, and I'll read it verse 2 again. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness, to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And I'll jump to verse 5 again. Thou shalt sit in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so the Lord thy God chasteneth thee. That's what we have to take away from it and remember even to this day. Because we're still in that wilderness. We're still on that road to salvation. We're still on that road to the promised land. So when we see those pains and sufferings in our life today, it's not that he's sitting back and cruel and petty and somebody has to make a stand and somebody has to say enough. That's foolishness. What we're supposed to see is that this is the chastening of the Lord, and we know that this is for our benefit the same way. It's for the benefit of the child who's chastened by the father for his errors. Exactly. Like it says in um, the book of Hebrews, if we endure chastening, then he dealeth with us as sons. And who is he dealing with as his son? Christ. And what's Christ going to receive? Everything. So if we endure this chastising, which is correction, and we need to... See, people think they don't need to be corrected. They just want to receive the bounty in be wicked as hell and still receive of God's goodness. See, that's what people right. expect. See, Christ was obedient unto death, unto the death of the cross. That's why he's going to receive the full inheritance and those that follow Christ. And just as you read, 
um, bro, humble themselves unto the Most High's commandments, his great commandments, because people don't see this and see them as something good or great. I can remember we being out and uh, teaching on the streets in, in London, and um, there was one woman that just came up heckling. It was like, you know, I said, what's your problem? We, she said, don't, don't, don't speak to these young people. And it's like, we're telling these young people the commandments of the Most High. And it says, so what? Don't tell them that. So we shouldn't tell the the, the same uh, young men that's on the street killing one another, stabbing one another. How many stabbings? They don't have many shootings over here, but they hell, they have a hell of a lot of stabbings over here. We shouldn't <laughs> be telling them that. Just let them stab one another. See, that's the mind of the people. Why? Because they don't consider the Most High is someone that they should follow. So the Most High is great, just like we were going into now. You know, let's raise up against these gods and be gods ourselves. And as you see, that's that's a common theme across many shows that we do. Even um, which show was it with the um, the vampires? Paranormal. Oh, uh, paranormal paranormal romance. Paranormal romance. So back to you. Yeah, we lost you at the end, but. yeah, when he says like he was going to be, there were new gods in this era, and he was going to rise up and be one of them. Exactly. Mm. So when you look at our heroes, our biblical heroes were the ones who understood that they were they were to stand for the Most High's commandments, and they were meant to sanctify the Heavenly Father in the eyes of the people. Even Moses was the one, the lawgiver. He was the one that was not only the lawgiver, but was one of the first mediators between the Heavenly Father and the nation of Israel. But even he fell short and did not enter the promised land because he forgot that one fact. When you looked at when you look at what we read in the book of Deuteronomy earlier in the book of Deuteronomy chapter three, going into sanctifying the most high and going into why we had to suffer in the wilderness and what that was about. Also, in the time of the wilderness, we see that there was an opportunity that Moses had to sanctify the Heavenly Father in the eyes of the people, and he missed it. And this was a time when, I'll read it real quick. This is in the book of Deuteronomy. I'm sorry, not Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers, chapter 20. And I'll start at verse 1 and just read down to give you an idea of what's going on. Numbers 20 and 1. It says, Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chilled with Moses and spake, saying, With God, that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or vines or pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Take the rod, and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth, bring forth to them water out of the rock, 
so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts drink. So, according to what we read in the book of Deuteronomy about the Lord suffering us to suffering us and allowing us to hunger, allowing us to thirst, allowing us to go through these things, what was the purpose? The purpose so does that we would learn that he was the one that provided for our needs. He was the one that loved us. He was the one that cared about us. He was the one that was going to make sure that we were fed, make sure we were clothed, make sure we had water, make sure that our children were safe, make sure that our flocks were taken care of. He was the one. So that's the reason why even though they're here murmuring and complaining and rebelling against God, he still said, you know what? Moses, go before the people, speak to the rock, and make sure that they have this water. Why? So that the people would see this miracle and glorify God. But what happened? Verse 9, And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the, the congregation together before the rock. And he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels, must we fetch you water out of this rock. And Moses lifted up his hand, and with his rod he smote the rock twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank, and their beasts also. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, Because ye believed me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore ye shall not bring the congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. So the, what happened is Moses had that great opportunity to teach them about the love of the Heavenly Father, to teach them that the Heavenly Father was going to provide for them. But instead, out of his anger, and because of the congregation provoking him to anger, he spoke unadvisedly with his lips and said, what, must we fetch water out of this rock for you? And even when you read in the book of Deuteronomy 3, when the Heavenly Father spoke to Moses, when Moses spoke to the Heavenly Father about that same incident, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 3, I'll read verse 23 to 26, just to show you how serious this matter was. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23, and this is Moses speaking of the Lord or speaking of a conversation he had with God. And I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might? I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, the goodly mountain and Lebanon. But the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not hear me. And the Lord said unto me, Let it suffice thee, speak no more unto me of this matter. Mm. So in short, the Lord told him that he wasn't going to change his mind and then went on to say, Do not mention this to me again. Woo. So it's not a joke when we fail to sanctify the Most High in the eyes of the people. And that's the reason why we teach these shows, we make sure that it goes out, that the Heavenly Father is for us, we just cannot be against him. That the Heavenly Father loves us, we just have to obey his commandments. 
But the problem is, is that our view of the Heavenly Father in Christ is not based on Scripture. It's based on how the pagan world views their gods. When you look at Moses, Moses was a hero for us in the Bible. But when you look at the Greek pantheons, when the Greek gods and the Greek society, their heroes were not the ones who sided with their gods. Their heroes were not the ones who championed their gods. Their heroes were the ones that fought against their gods and rebelled against their gods. Mm. And to prove that, let's get another audio clip for the day. And this is an audio clip from the older TV show in the, in the 90s. It was a uh, really, really campy TV show called um, Hercules, The Legendary Journeys. And then later they had an offshoot, which is Zena the Warrior Princess. Some people might remember that more than Hercules, especially if you're a guy. I watched them both. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so back in the days, right? Yeah, you were looking at Lucy Lawless in her leather gear. But the, but the point is, is that when you listen to one of the things that always caught my ear is that when you listen to the intro to that show, it spoke about the difference between how we how we're supposed to view the Heavenly Father, who is our God and how the Greeks viewed the gods of old. So let's take a listen mm. to the intro to that show, and it will be astonishingly clear how they viewed their gods. This is the story of a time long ago, a time of myth and legend, when the ancient gods were petty and cruel, and they plagued mankind with suffering. Only one man dared to challenge their power, Hercules. Hercules possessed a strength the world had never seen, a strength surpassed only by the power of his heart. He journeyed the earth, battling the minions of his wicked stepmother, Hera, the all-powerful queen of the gods. But wherever there was evil, wherever an innocent would suffer, there would be Hercules. gods were petty and cruel and they plagued mankind with pain and suffering only one man stood against their power hmm. that's what the definition of a hero is to the Greeks which is the reason why when you look at this world the people who oppose God the people who question him the people who fight against the biblical truth of the scriptures are the ones who are hailed as heroes, even in the church. Now, you might think that that's a strange statement to make. Like, how can you justify saying that people who fight against the Heavenly Father are going to be praised in the church? Well, there's a show that we do on Tuesday nights, which the Brother Kakam Gabar hosts with the Brother Gadai, one who's on with me right now, and the Brother Dewad and Anthony, or Blog Talk Anthony, rather, and in that show, Are You Smarter Than Your Pastor? What are some of the things that y'all go over on Are You Smarter Than Your Pastor? <laughs> uh, money-grubbing pastors. 
pastor well, lying on the Bible. So since I kind of caught you on guard, I'll help you out. Good. When you look at a lot of the things, that, especially in the themes of that show, Are You Smarter Than Your Pastor?, there are people in the church on the pulpit who are saying blasphemous, wicked, evil things against God and the doctrine of the Bible and being praised for it. You did a show on a man called Swilling, Pastor Swilling, who came out as a homosexual in the congregation, and the church praised him and kept him, and they said, we will not depart from you because you have the words of eternal life. In the house of God, so-called. So did he stand up for the laws of the Most High, or did he oppose and fight against the laws of the Most High? He opposed the Most High. And did he get praised for it? Yeah. Yes, he did. And you look at Carlton Pearson, the gospel of inclusion, who basically said, everybody's going to, everybody's going to heaven. I'm tired of sending my friends to hell, so everybody's mm-hmm. going to make it. No matter who you are, where you come from, you had people doing all of this wickedness. You had a woman stand up and do a witch's wedding, a woman named Anita Bynum stand up in a wedding dress, do a witch's wedding with a sword on the ground in a church, passing over it with the congregation chanting her new name in the church. So when you look at what's going on, it might have seemed like a stretch at first, or what when you look like, okay, in the Greek in the Greek pantheon, their heroes were the ones that opposed their gods. Their heroes were the ones that stood up to their gods and said, enough is enough. One day somebody's going to take a stand. One day somebody's got to say enough, which is the reason why you had Pastor Swilling stand up and say, listen, God said that all these things were abominations. So if you want to talk about my abomination, I'm going to talk about your abominations. If you want to talk about I can't be uh, homosexual and have sex with men, then let's talk about all the things you're doing that God said is an abomination. Did he ever turn around and say, well, you know what? The scriptures are the scriptures. The Lord is the Lord. The Heavenly Father is right. We have to bow down and serve him. Or are all of these people collectively fighting against the Heavenly Father in the so-called church of God and receiving praise for it? Yeah, they're, they're receiving praise for it. They're being... Elevated for it. If you say what the Bible says in the mainstream, you're going to be destroyed. And there's a reason why. There's a reason why it's like that. Because in this world, they adopted one of the most wicked beliefs that were taken from the pagan world, which was the fact that they believed in a very real sense that it was the prayers of mankind that caused the gods to increase and to ascend in power. And that's not something that's particular of Greek mythology. It's even in the mythology of the Egyptians, the Babylonians, so on and so forth, which is why that there were times when new kings would rise up and they would choose chief gods that they would worship. If it was not popular with the people, then after their death, they would destroy those temples They would deface the images. They would deface the tombs. They would break the heads off of the statues. Why? Because they believe that if they deface the gods, if they destroyed their temples, if they wiped out their names, then in a sense they were killing off gods, causing them not to survive, causing them not to be worshipped, causing them not to be remembered. So that's the reason why 
that whole concept translated over from Babylon to Egypt, even to the Greco-Roman gods. And why is that important to what we're going over today? Because people believe the same thing concerning the Heavenly Father. They believe that the Heavenly Father needs us for survival. They do not believe that we need him. They do not believe that we consist by him. They believe that he consists by us. And to show, to illustrate that more clearly, there's a scene in that very same movie that we took a clip from earlier, which was The Clash of the Titans, where mankind wages war against the gods. And when they wage war against the gods, they believe in their heart of hearts that they're going to rise up, take the place of gods on planet Earth, and they're going to do this by defacing and defiling the gods of all. So let's take a listen to what was going to be the first clip of the day, which was, We Are the Gods Now. Our Our mighty legion, our heroes who have dared to strike a blow at the heart of Zeus. The temples are burning. The statues have fallen. We have starved them of our prayers. Tonight, after a generation of struggle, the sun does not set over the ocean. It sets on Olympus itself. A new era has begun. The era of man! You're provoking the gods and you act as if there will be no consequence. Now what do you want? Should we be afraid? Should we be trembling and soiling ourselves in fear? The gods need us. They need our worship. What do we need of them? We are the gods now. Now, how many people out there listening right now even believe that? Many. Yeah. They're many. They said the gods need us. What do we need of them? We are the gods now. And interestingly enough, I had uh, I had an interesting encounter like that when I was very, very young in this ministry. I went to a Bible study when I was still in college. I went to a Bible study that I got invited to. And I came there with the intention of just holding my peace and just listening to what they had to say and not causing stir. So I'm sitting there, and the pastor there was was letting, he was the pastor was there, and he had a youth group. And I'm sitting there with these um, young men and women, all of us in our early 20s. And the youth pastor was going over the scripture in the book of First Corinthians, chapter 12. And he was reading verse 27, 1 Corinthians 12 and 27. And it reads, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. And which is a beautiful scripture, by the way, because that scripture illustrates the fact that when we are vessels that are meat for the master's use, like the scriptures tell us we're supposed to be vessels, meat for the master's use, that the Heavenly Father gives us gifts, talents, and abilities. When you read the whole chapter of 1 Corinthians 12, it tells us the Heavenly Father gives us gifts, talents, abilities, and all of those blessings that he gives us are for the benefit of the whole body and how all of us operate as a piece of that body of Christ on the planet Earth. So one of the women, one of the young women that was in that meeting, she raises her hand 
And she says, I have a question. If we are the body of Christ, then what can he do without us? And my jaw <laughs> dropped. And I looked to the right, I looked to the left, because I was expecting somebody to rebuke her and correct her almost immediately. <laughs> somebody instead, with some damn sense. <laughs> instead, what happened is heads started nodding, people started agreeing, yeah, yeah, that's true, that's true. Yeah, what can he do without us? And finally, when I couldn't take it anymore, I raised my hand. And I was like, listen, the scriptures tell us in the book of Matthew, that the Heavenly Father can raise up stones to worship him. And it is a privilege and an honor for us to be allowed to serve the Heavenly Father and his Christ. But the Heavenly Father does not need us for anything. And I guess that it kind of caught people off guard that I would even speak or say something like that, especially since that was my first time ever coming there. So they just got vexed. And the dude just looked at me and he said, God is our father, and our father would never say to his sons, I don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew where I was, I knew what time it was, and I just said, you know what, I just had to take a step back because I could see where this was going, and I could see that they really believe that for the most part that the most high needs us and we don't need him. But when you read the book of Psalms 50, I love this scripture, the book of Psalms 50, and I'll read from verse 8 down. This is Psalms 50, verse 8. And the Heavenly Father says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy foals. For every beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountain, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. So when you look at that, the Lord is letting us know he don't need us. Mm. He don't need us for nothing. He didn't need us to feed him or to do anything for him. And the glory of the Most High, he has a thousand, thousand, a million, million angels ministering before him at all times, praising his name. You know, you know what that, Go ahead, you finish. Verse 13, will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee and thou shalt glorify me. Mm. So he's letting you know right there, it's not his need of us. We are the ones who have desperate need of him. Now, what are you about to bring out? Um, who was that line in um, The Avengers where Captain America said, what are you without that suit? What, to <laughs> what did Tony Stark say? <laughs> Millionaire philanthropist, my boy. <laughs> so the same thing goes out to this simple woman talking about what is the what is Christ without us. Um, first of all, he's the Son of God. Second of all, he's the Word. Uh, third of all, he's the Alpha and Omega. And I could go on and on and on and on. So what is, what is Christ without us? A whole hell of a lot. Okay. And I'm going to read this. This is um, John 15 and 5. It says, I am the vine. 
So Christ is the source. We're not the source. We stem from him. He doesn't stem from us. I am the vine. Ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me, you, ye can do nothing. <laughs> I'll read that point again. For without me, ye can do nothing. So if you don't have Christ, needless to say, what can he do? What's Christ without us? No. What are we without Christ? That's the more important question. Because without Christ, we're nothing. Back to you. And see, and, and I'm so glad you went there. Because even in Colossians 1, I have to go there. We got to go there since we're glorifying the Most High, we're sanctifying the name of the Lord. This is Colossians 1 and 12. Giving thanks unto the Father who has made us meet to be partakers to the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in mm. whom we have redemption through his blood, even to forgiveness of sins who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that mm. are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Mm. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he mm. is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. So mm. what is he without us? And what can <laughs> he do without us? And he does, does he need our prayers to survive? No. Can we no. starve Jesus Christ of our prayers? Can no. we burn down his temples and have him come begging to us? If no. he's hungry, is he going to tell us? No. Mm -mm. They don't understand this Bible, and they don't understand the word of God. But interestingly enough, how does that play into the world today? Because people believe that the Heavenly Father needs us, and there are even people who become atheists based on that hatred of God. Interestingly enough, when I got that video clip for the show, on the YouTube page, there was a people there were some people leaving comments, and one of the persons wrote on the on the comment was, "I really didn't like the concept of this movie." about the gods needing our prayers to survive. And the person underneath that answered the comment, and they said, the very reason that I'm an atheist. Hmm. So what are they basically saying? They're saying that that's their revenge against God. And you know, it's hmm. the line, I coined the phrase, I coined the phrase a long time ago, I've never met a real atheist, I've never met a true atheist, I've never met a person that really did not believe in God, but I have met a lot of people that are angry at him. And yeah. in their anger, in their anger, they think that they're taking revenge by saying, I don't believe in him. Mm -hmm. That's their revenge. So if they were living in the world of Greek mythology where the gods needed you to survive, maybe that would be a revenge. But when you're dealing with the one true God, the God of heaven and earth, and the only begotten son, Jesus Christ, it's your loss and your mm -hmm. destruction. Mm -hmm. So... 
What we're going to do now is we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to deal with some other aspects of how Greek mythology influenced the teachings and beliefs of modern-day Christianity, including the Immaculate Conception and our views of heaven and hell. So this is from Darkness to Light. Yeah, this is from Darkness to Light. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. Church Radio Network broadcasts seven days a week on blogtalkradio.com forward slash the BOCC. Listen to our archive broadcasts or check us out while we are live on the air. Come and visit us in the virtual living room at 2 o'clock p.m. on Sundays where we examine current topics according to the scriptures. Are you looking for the truth? Can you handle the truth? Find out on Mondays at 8 o'clock p.m. It doesn't matter what church you attend or philosophy you believe, take the challenge to see Are You Smarter Than Your Pastor on Tuesdays at 8 o'clock p.m. The world is engrossed in darkness, but it shall be destroyed by the light. Check out From Darkness to Light at 7 o'clock p.m. on Wednesdays where all manner of witchcraft, occult practices, and Satanism is exposed for what it is. Before the light comes, it's time to awake. On Thursdays at 8 o'clock p.m., if you are seeking salvation, 
listen to Repentance is the Key, Fridays at 7 o'clock p.m. And after you've listened to all of these shows, find out how we will become kings and priests, Saturday mornings at 9 o'clock a.m. All shows are on Eastern Standard Time. Remember to check out the Body of Christ Church seven days a week on blogtalkradio.com forward slash the B-O-C-C. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash T-H-E-B-O-C-C. Shalom. like to welcome you back to From Darkness to Light, Pantheon, and the Birth of the Christian Mythology. We'd like to thank everyone that's called in to the show, everyone that's participating in the chat room, and without further ado, we're going to hand it back over to our brother, Akrai. We were talking about the further influences of Greek mythology and this false Christianity and how those influences have been so enduring. And one of the things that it really comes forth in, and this is something that's going to really shock some people, amaze some people, and some people are just going to get straight up angry, as it happens every time we deal with this topic. And it is the topic of dealing with the birth of Jesus Christ. Because there was a time when the whole world understood that Jesus was born as the son of Joseph and Mary and that the spirit within him was the spirit that the Heavenly Father gave him to be the son of God. So he was the son of God in the truest sense of the word because of that spirit, that Holy Spirit that was within him. But physically, he was the child of Joseph and Mary as, Joseph and Mary, as his lineage in the Bible suggests. When you read the scriptures, Concerning his lineage, I'll just go to a few scriptures, and some of us, some of us who have gone over this topic many, many times, we're more familiar with it. I'll just as a few, I'll go to the book of Acts, chapter two, verse twenty-nine, and it reads, "Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of our patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulchre is with us unto this day." Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. So when it talks about the fruit of David's loins, according to the flesh, what does that mean? That meant that Jesus Christ came out of the lineage of King David the same way it was prophesied in the Old Testament. Even when you read in the book of Romans chapter 1, verse 3, and it goes into that same prophecy, it says, Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, further confirming the same thing, that David was in the lineage of Jesus Christ as it was prophesied. Even in the same scriptures in the book of Hebrews, it tells you, 
that Jesus Christ came out of the tribe of Judah. Why would it, how would it even be possible for Jesus Christ to have a tribe of Israel that he came out of if he was, in fact, born of what the world deems as immaculate conception? Because, Alvin, you have a lot of static on your side. Do I? Yeah. Now it's down. Now it's down. Yeah, so that whole concept is something that came into the church much, much, much later than people ever knew. And the reason why it was so acceptable when that doctrine came forth about God coming down from the heaven and having sex with Mary or impregnating Mary or, as the scriptures say, the Holy Spirit overshadowing her, they take that overshadowing as the point in time where she physically became pregnant. And that is a way, that's a topic that's way too wavy for us to go into right now at this moment. But we did an entire show concerning that. And in the moment, if I find it, I could post it in the chat room for people that would like to listen to that one. That was the show that we did. The title of it was Immaculate Deception. And lower and we'll get that and post it for you in the chat room. But the point is this. When this whole concept was introduced to the Christian church, why was it so easy for them to take this in and accept it? The reason why it was so easy for them to take this in and accept it is because they had been dealing with that whole concept for centuries, even millennia, prior to the birth of Christ. They had been dealing with those concepts in paganism of a deity coming down impregnating women and that that woman was going to give birth to the Son of God, which is why when you look at all of the rituals and holidays surrounding Jesus Christ, it's all pagan. It's Christmas, one of the largest pagan festivals ever on the face of the earth, which is a pagan festival that was in honor of Nimrod and Semiramis, which was a festival that goes so far back that even in the book of Jeremiah chapter 10, it tells you about that Christmas tree. When you look at Easter, it was a going into rites of fertility because when you look at the rites of fertility, what does a bunny rabbit and an egg have to do with the resurrection of our Lord? Absolutely nothing. nothing. The bunny rabbit nothing and all. the egg are both. Exactly. The rabbit and the egg are both symbols of fertility. So where did that whole pagan connection come? It came from the fact that when you look at Greek mythology, they believed that their gods were coming down constantly having sex with mortal women, producing offspring on earth that were going to be considered demigods. Jesus Christ is not a demigod. Jesus Christ is not a Nephilim. Jesus Christ is the son of Joseph and Mary, but he in particular is the fulfillment of the biblical prophecy of Moses in Deuteronomy 18, saying that out of that line was going to come our Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That in no way diminishes Jesus. That in no way diminishes his power. That in no way diminishes his importance. In fact, when you look at the scriptures, it does not diminish who he is. It increases who he is. And to prove that, when you look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, verse 15, when it talks about Jesus, it says this. 
For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does that mean? That means that because he is a high priest that was fashioned after in the same image of a man, he's able to give us that comfort when we have that need. It's the same thing explained in the book of Hebrews chapter 2. This is Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. So Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, is not the father of Jesus Christ, because it tells you, Hebrews 2.16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So what is that letting you know? That's letting you know that Jesus Christ coming in the flesh as a mortal man and not as a demigod, that does not diminish him. That does not take away his power and his authority, his might. That does not take away the fact that he is the only begotten son of God. That does not diminish the fact that he is the firstborn of the dead. That does not diminish the fact that even at this moment he is at the right hand of the majesty on high, ruling over all things. But it's letting you know that when he came on the earth, he did not take on the nature of angels. He took on the seed of Abraham, meaning that that seed, that lineage of Abraham, that bloodline from Abraham all the way down to Moses, all the way down to to David, all the way from David to just all the way from David to Joseph to our Lord and Savior. That's how he came into this world. And, and you know, go ahead, take. I'm 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 glad you said that because um another conversation that I had with this uh Nigerian guy I used to work with and he was like um I'm showing him like look Christ is our example and Christ did no sin. We said, Well Christ was a he was a special guy. He was a special guy. He could he could resist because he you know, he had angelic powers. No, Christ even he had he had the spirit of the most high within him, he was in the flesh. So he was tempted as we were tempted. But he showed us how that we could overcome the flesh. He walked in carnal flesh, and we walked in carnal flesh, and he overcame it. So he came and walked it, and he showed he walked the path to show that we could walk the path of righteousness and follow the Most High. And that's such a beautiful point that the scriptures make because there are people who turn around and say, "Well, Jesus Christ was a demigod. You know, his father was an angel, or his father was something else." Or the, he wasn't born the same way we were born. He didn't come into this world the same way we came into this world. And they use that as their excuse for wickedness and sin because he's not like us. But the scriptures tell us that he is and that in every way it behooved him to be made into this earth the same way that we are made 
so that he can teach us how to do it. That's mm-hmm. what it was always about. But say it. And um I just like to say which one of us has been tempted for forty days and forty nights? And some of those <laughs> by Satan himself. If those exactly. offers were made to certain people like, okay, I'll give you the glory of all these kingdoms, and you'll rule over them. You know what they'll be saying? I'm the king of the world. They wouldn't be saying, get the <laughs> end Satan. I'm the king of the world. Exactly. That's what they would be exactly. saying. So Christ had it even harder than what we had. And we're going through light affliction because he did the bulk of the work for us. All we have to do is be faithful and true to what he's telling us, and we'll be safe. Exactly. Let's take a little trip back in time to when these doctrines were coming into the church. Because Paul tells us that they were going to bring damnable heresies into the church. Paul tells us that the time was going to come when they were not going to endure sound doctrine, but he to themselves teaches having itching ears. So you read in the New Testament, the New Testament was written at a time when the children of Israel were under Roman rule. So which means that the Greco-Roman pantheon was around at the time. That's the reason why you read about Paul going into the Athens and everybody there has idols and worshiping things. They called Paul Mercurius and they called um, Barnabas um, Jupiter. They called them Jupiter and Mercurius. They called them basically Zeus and Hermes. So that's how ingrained that culture was in the world they were living in. So when you look at people trying to explain or the Israelites trying to explain to the pagan world, Jesus Christ is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. What was pop- what was popping up in the mind of the people? Oh, well, the same way that Zeus came down and had sex with women to make children. No, that's not what happens. But that's what's going to be in the mind of the pagans that hear it because that's how their gods operate. And to prove that, let's go into... Another clip that we had, this was a clip from a documentary that they do on the History Channel. It was called um, Clash of the Gods. And in it, what they were doing were profiling the different Greek deities and the belief systems that surrounded them. And it was really interesting when they did the first episode. The very first episode they did was concerning Zeus. And one of the things that we're going to go listen to now is Zeus and his appetite for women and how his lust overpowered him. So let's take a listen to that real quick. As the Persian Empire in turn is defeated by Alexander the Great, Greek culture comes to ancient Israel. The Greeks introduce a huge cast of gods and goddesses, including one who will shape our image of Satan for centuries. Hades has a black face or black beard. He sits on a throne, often made of ebony, and he wields a two-pronged fork, not for prodding sinners, but for blasting things to bits. To the classical Greeks, the underworld was ruled by Hades, who was the god of the dead. He was one of the Olympian gods, but he seems to have spent most of his time in this dark, shadowy underworld, which is also called Hades. 
Now, he wasn't a very nice character. He seems to have been very morbid and morose and nobody really liked him. None of the gods liked him and certainly no humans liked him. Hades wasn't very likable, but he wasn't evil either. In fact, the ancient Greeks see Hades as a god of justice. They believe that when people die, they go to Hades and he decides whether they go to a place of happiness or a place of misery. As ruler of the world underground, Hades is also the god of wealth and abundance. In a dim memory of Hades, people have believed for centuries that the devil can make you rich. As well as the brooding character of Hades, the Greeks give the world another familiar ingredient of the devil's story. In a famous myth, Zeus, the greatest of the gods, defeats the winged serpent Typhon and throws him down to Tartarus, the lowest region of the underworld. Over the following centuries, the myth grows into the story of how the angel Satan rebels against God and is thrown out of heaven with all his followers. Satan's allies, the fallen angels, become his legion of demons. So, can you imagine being in the time of the Greco-Roman Empire or being in a time of Roman rule where the Christianity is on the rise, where you have Israelites accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and going out and teaching Jesus to the masses, and they're explaining to people that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, what are they mm -hmm. thinking? They're thinking as the pagans thought. They're thinking, okay, well, the gods we were worshiping, they came down and had sex with women all the time, so that must be what happened. That's how that came into the church. But mm -hmm. that's not according to the scriptures. And even when you look at the Christian apologists of the past that went out and taught the word, you had people like Justin Martyr, and Justin Martyr was a Christian apologist who lived centuries ago, and his quotes are often used to discredit Jesus Christ as if he was a myth, not understanding that his quotes don't discredit Jesus Christ at all, but what it does show is how the ancient world viewed him and the same light that they viewed the pagan demigods. And these are some of his quotes that were used. And it says, um, I'll just read a little bit of his bio. Justin Martyr, he was raised in a pag as a pagan but later converted to Christianity. And the biggest story that came up about Justin Martyr was when, he, when his writings came forth about how he taught the pagan world about Jesus Christ. And this is, these are the two quotes that are used most often. And this is the first quote. It says, when we say that Jesus Christ was produced without sexual union, was crucified and died and rose again and ascended to heaven, we propound nothing or different from what you believe regarding those whom you call the sons of Jupiter. So what happened is he falsely went forth and was pushing this doctrine that was going forth saying that if you want to believe in Jesus Christ, that he was the son of God, then believe in Jesus as the son of God the same way you believe in the sons of Jupiter, talking about Zeus. Then his second most popular quote goes on and says, and if we even affirm that he was born of a virgin, accept this in common 
with what you accept of Perseus. And, of course, anybody that's familiar with Greek mythology knows that Perseus is one of the sons of Zeus. As a matter of fact, he's the hero of the old Clash of the Titans back in the days that was made in the 80s and both the two horrible new ones that were made just a few years ago. Perseus is the star of those movies as well. He's the one that killed Medusa, had Pegasus, the flying horse, and things like that. And that's what they attributed to Jesus Christ. So you have people that are supposedly Christians who are talking about Jesus Christ saying, oh, well, the guy that killed Medusa with the magic sword and had the flying winged horse and that was the son of Jupiter or the son of Zeus, well, that's how you should worship Jesus Christ and believe of him in the same way. So if that was some of the things that were being taught and coming into early Christianity, is it any great secret as to why that lie has been perpetuated to this very day where people will fight, argue, cry, scream, get upset, be ready to fight and kill you when you say Jesus is the Son of God, yes but his physical parents were Joseph and Mary. Yeah. I mean, unbeknownst to most people, um, they 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 did fight and, and kill you under the time of Constantine. That's where a lot of those things came from. If you didn't accept these doctrines, then basically you were ostracized out of your community, which was dominated by the church. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. And when you say ostracized and put out of the church and things like that, they when they excommunicated if when the church excommunicated you in those days, it was pretty much understood that you were separated from the grace of God, you could not obtain salvation, and you were damned to hell. And when they said that you were damned to hell, what were they were talking about? They were talking about you were going to be cast down into a fiery pit underground where the devil was sitting on a throne with a pitchfork poking you for all eternity. And <laughs> Is that in the Bible? No. That in but, that's what we, but that's what we were taught, and that's what we believe. And so that's a perfect segue into the last thing that we're going to be dealing with on the show today, which is even the whole concepts of heaven and hell are so very different from the Bible because the scriptures tell us about these things, whereas when you read, when you look at the teachings of the church and the teachings of the Judeo-Christian world, it does not reflect what is taught in the Bible. It reflects what was taught in Greek mythology. When you look at the image of the Judeo-Christian Satan, he's in hell with demonic minions as his followers, sitting on a throne with a pitchfork, tormenting the souls of the dead if you were wicked. You, if you're good, when you die, you go to heaven. If you're evil and you die, you go to hell. That is not in the Bible. That is Greek mythology. And that was centered around the belief of Hades, God of the underworld. And lo and behold, we actually did another show back in the day called Throne of the Underworld, where we went into how a lot of our beliefs about heaven and hell and who goes to goes to hell after they die is based on mythology and of the pagan world and not based on scripture. When you look in the scriptures, the Most High tells us some interesting things about 
when we pass away. Even in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12 and 7, it's a very, very simple equation. Ecclesiastes 7 and, I'm sorry, 12 and 7, and it reads, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the Spirit shall return unto God who gave it. And that was very simple. When we died, we went down into the grave. Our bodies became the dust. Even in the scriptures, they called it Sheol. When you look at what happened to the Spirit, the scripture says the Spirit returned to God who gave it. When you look in the book of Job, Job spoke about that place where he was going to go as an untimely, what did he say, as an um, untimely, untimely birth, where he said he was going to go down into the grave. And let's read what Job said about it, because that was really an interesting point that Job made about where people go where he die, when they die. So this is the book of Job, chapter 3, and... This is what he says about his birth, or why didn't he die when he was being tormented. 3, verse 11. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? Why did the knees prevent me? Or why the breast that I should suck? For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept, then I have been at rest. So why did Job say that he was going to be at rest? He didn't say, I was going to be in heaven with uh, with the angels playing a harp with wings on my back. He didn't say that he was going to be in hell being stuck with a pitchfork. He said he was going to be at rest, which is consistent with the same thing that the prophet Samuel said when he was summoned, when he was spoken to from the grave. What was the first thing that Samuel said to Saul when Saul summoned him up? Do you Why have you disturbed my rest? Why have you disquieted my rest? He said, "Listen, <laughs> I was sleeping, I was resting, and this is and this is what this is a prophet of God." So you would think that a prophet of God, okay, he died and just teleported into heaven. He's sitting in, in there with the angels having a feast. Mm-mm. The scripture says that he was at rest. So then it goes on. This is Job chapter three, verse. 13 again. For now should I have lain still and been quiet. I should have slept. Then had I been at rest. With who? With kings and counselors of the earth, which built desolate places for themselves. Or with princes that had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or as an untimely birth I had not been, as infants which never saw light. For there, where's the there he's talking about? He's talking about there in the spirit world where we go to rest. For there the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voice of the oppressor. The small and great are there, and the servant is free from his master. So who's there? The good, the bad, the wicked, the evil, the slave, the master, the rich, the poor, the great. Everybody's there So if everybody's there That's the reason why the scriptures speak About that great day of judgment When the sound of that trump And the dead in Christ rising first And as the scriptures say Some are going to raise to everlasting glory And raise to be with the Lord forever And others are going to raise to everlasting shame And contempt and be destroyed 
So where did that whole concept of you're going to die and go to hell come from? That came from Greek mythology. It did not come from the Bible. So let's listen to another audio clip, which was taken from that very same series, Clash of the Gods. And this was an episode they actually did on Hades, which was the god of the underworld. And interestingly enough, what they did is they drew a parallel between him and Satan. As a matter of fact, I'll make a quick correction. This documentary was not, uh, even though Clash of the Gods did a episode on Hades, the audio clip we're about to listen to now came from another documentary called History of the Devil, which was also on the History Channel. So let's take a listen to that clip. As the Persian Empire in turn is defeated by Alexander the Great, Greek culture comes to ancient Israel. The Greeks introduce a huge cast of gods and goddesses, including one who will shape our image of Satan for centuries. Hades has a black face or black beard. He sits on a throne, often made of ebony, and he wields a two-pronged fork, not for prodding sinners, but for blasting things to bits. To the classical Greeks, the underworld was ruled by Hades, who was the god of the dead. He was one of the Olympian gods, but he seems to have spent most of his time in this dark, shadowy underworld, which is also called Hades. Now, he wasn't a very nice character. He seems to have been very morbid and morose, and nobody really liked him. None of the gods liked him, and certainly no humans liked him. Hades wasn't very likable, but he wasn't evil either. In fact, the ancient Greeks see Hades as a god of justice. They believe that when people die, they go to Hades, and he decides whether they go to a place of happiness or a place of misery. As ruler of the world underground, Hades is also the god of wealth and abundance. In a dim memory of Hades, people have believed for centuries that the devil can make you rich. As well as the brooding character of Hades, the Greeks give the world another familiar ingredient of the devil's story. In a famous myth, Zeus, the greatest of the gods, defeats the winged serpent Typhon and throws him down to Tartarus, the lowest region of the underworld. Over the following centuries, the myth grows into the story of how the angel Satan rebels against God and is thrown out of heaven with all his followers. Satan's allies, the fallen angels, become his legion of demons. So, very interesting stuff. Very and interesting. You look at that. So, who is Hades? He's the god of the underworld. He's the one that's in hell, sitting on a throne with a pitchfork in his hands, dealing with the souls of the dead. You don't read about that in the Bible. You don't read about sitting with a pitchfork on a throne in hell with minions and followers who rebelled against God. 
What you do read about Satan in the Bible may surprise you because he's not in the underworld. Let's find out where he is. This is the book of Job, chapter 1, and I'll start at verse 6. And it reads, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. Hmm. So the angel of the Most High, the sons of God, come to present themselves before God, and here comes Satan right with the rest of them. Verse 7, And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered and answered the Lord, and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. So the Lord is letting us know from the start that when the sons of God present themselves before the throne, and when the angels are there in the heavenly realm, Satan is right there along with them. But it's letting you know his main work is on the earth, going to and fro in the earth and walking up and down in it, which falls right in line with what the scriptures tell us, that that is the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. That's the reason why the world is covered in darkness and gross darkness covers the people, because that is the spirit of Satan that is in the world. That's the same reason why in the book of Revelations, chapter 12, it, defi it defines Satan as the accuser of the brethren. This is Revelations 12 and 10. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God, Day and night So why is Satan before the throne of God Accusing us before, before the most high throne <laughs> The scriptures tell us that that's what he does Yeah he's a tempter so of the brethren So when you look at the whole concept That the scriptures are dealing with as far as Satan It's very much like a court, a courtroom The heavenly father is the judge Satan is the prosecution, and Jesus Christ is the defense. The Heavenly Father is the ones that judge all matters. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one that accuses us before the throne of God the same way he accused Job. Does Job fear you for nothing? If you take away his riches, he's going to curse you to your face. All of those things. Constantly accusing the brethren before the throne of God. Why? Because that's his job to do. He never had a fight against the Most High. He never rose up and took legions of angels to follow him. He never had a kingdom of his own under the ground where he reigns in hell to fight against the servants of the Most High. All of that was taken from Greek mythology which is why even in the movies that just came out with the Clash of the Titans from the old and the new and the, and the Disney movie, Hercules, and all of those movies, who was the main villain in all of those movies? It was Hades fighting against Zeus. That's where they took it from. So in the same way, if you're looking at the ancient world coming all the way up to today, when they were teaching the Bible to people who came from that pagan background, the first thing they did was take these characters and relate it, saying, this must be Zeus and Hades, not understanding that you could not take things from paganism and mirror it to the Bible. It does not melt. 
because this is the one true book, and it does not relate to anything dealing with paganism, witchcraft, Satanism, or the like. Well, what about the people that say they had dreams and they was walking in heaven, and other people that said, they, oh, they digged in the earth and they dig so deep that they could hear the the cries of the people crying out in hell and so forth and so on? Well, you got a lot of people that have the near-death experiences and people that see or people that say that they have seen things in the spirit world or seen things as far as heaven, hell, things of that nature. And without getting too crazy into it, when you we know that the scriptures tell us that the spirit returns to the, to the heavenly father. And the scriptures also tell us that the things of the most high are sealed. So I'm not going to sit here and go into how we know the details of what happens and what a person sees after they die because we don't. But at the same time, we know that when you look at people talking about I journey to the Judeo-Christian hell and saw Satan on a throne and things like that, that's not in line with the scriptures. So we have a choice. We can believe what somebody saw when they were getting zapped on an operating table or we can believe what the scriptures say. Uh, absolutely. And um, e- even even to that, the scholars agree, because I was on this, this one show on Blog Talk Radio, and it was talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And what was shocking what was shocking to me, you know, this was a, a gentleman, and he was like, um, he was saying that the Bible was true because he traveled to Egypt, Israel, and, diff- and the Bible lands. And through archaeology, he was proving that the Bible, the, you know, the Bible, what the Bible was saying was true because the ancient archaeological records were there. So they were saying, well, what about the Ark of the Covenant? Like, you know, they wanted, they were testing them. He said, well, if you read in the Apocrypha, you see that the Ark of the Covenant was hidden. And I was like, wow, this guy really does study. So, and that's exactly what he said. He said, either you're going to believe what people say or you're going to believe what's written in the scriptures. And, and to further that point, when we say when we say the whole aspect of believe what people say or believe the scriptures, it's not to suggest that the people were making up stories or even that they were lying because people see many different things, whether it be a demonic vision, a phantasm, or even the Most High to the showing them showing them things to stir, to turn them from a path of wickedness to turn to righteousness. So it's a lot of things that can happen, even when you read, and, and that's not far-fetched or not in line with the scriptures, even when you read about the plague that came on Egypt, if during that darkness that you spoke about, it tells you that they, the Lord had terrors in the darkness waiting for them to the point that they were frozen in one spot for three days because of the great fear that came upon them. So, So we know that the Lord can meditate terrors on people when they're dealing with wickedness. But to say that that overthrows the scriptures itself, that is not happening. Or it changes what the scriptures say. Exactly. So even when you look at the one final aspect that we're going to deal with pertaining to Satan, and this is probably the most diabolical aspect of it all, and the reason why we say it's the most diabolical aspect of Satan is because it's the primal or fundamental beliefs that go into modern-day 
Satanism and the modern-day worship of Satan. And that is the belief that Satan is the tragic hero of the Bible. It is the fundamentals of Gnosticism. It is the fundamentals of Satanism. It is the fundamentals of every belief system that demonizes God in favor of a heroic, noble, tragic Satan. And it is the myth of Prometheus. What people may or may not, some people may or may not be familiar with that name Prometheus, but in Greek mythology, Prometheus was known as the firebringer, the one who gifted mankind with fire, the gift from heaven, and was punished for all eternity because of that sacrifice. And when you look at what has happened with the rise of Satanism in this world, it is closely related to the legend in the Greek myths about Prometheus. So much so that what we're going to do is we're going to listen to an audio recording that someone that was made on the life and legend and myth of Prometheus, and we're going to compare it to something that we read in the scriptures. So bear with us as we play this audio clip for you because it was made with one of those programs that I hate, which was the text-to-speech to to, text to speech program. So it's a computer reading the words, and it's not enunciating all the words properly, but it's still easily to, easy to understand. So just take a listen to it as it goes through the myth of Prometheus, and then we're going to go over some scriptures showing how people are using the myth of Prometheus to try to justify and demonize God while at the same time uplifting Satan as a tragic hero. Prometheus, the friend of man. Many centuries ago there lived two brothers, Prometheus or Forethought, and Epimetheus or Afterthought. Prometheus did not care for idle life among the gods on Mount Olympus. Instead he preferred to spend his time on the earth, helping men to find easier and better ways of living. For the children of earth were not happy as they had been in the golden days when Saturn ruled. Indeed, they were very poor and wretched and cold, without fire, without food, and with no shelter but miserable caves. With fire they could at least warm their bodies and cook their food, Prometheus thought, and later they could make tools and build houses for themselves and enjoy some of the comforts of the gods. So Prometheus went to Jupiter and asked that he might be permitted to carry fire to the earth. But Jupiter shook his head in wrath. Fire, indeed. He exclaimed. If men had fire they would soon be as strong and wise as we who dwell on Olympus. Never will I give my consent. Prometheus made no reply, but he didn't give up his idea of helping men. Some other way must be found, he thought. Then, one day, as he was walking among some reeds he broke off one, and seeing that its hollow stalk was filled with a dry soft pith, exclaimed, at last, in this I can carry fire, and the children of men shall have the great gift in spite of Jupiter. Immediately, taking a long stalk in his hands, he set out for the dwelling of the sun in the far east. He reached there in the early morning, just as Apollo's chariot was about to begin its journey across the sky. Lighting his reed, he hurried back, carefully guarding the precious spark that was hidden in the hollow stalk. Then he showed men how to build fires for themselves, and it was not long before they began to do all the wonderful things of which Prometheus had dreamed. 
They learn to cook and to domesticate animals and to till the fields and to mine precious metals and melt them into tools and weapons. And they came out of their dark and gloomy caves and built for themselves beautiful houses of wood and stone. And instead of being sad and unhappy they begin to laugh and sing. Behold, the age of gold has come again, they said. But Jupiter was not so happy. He saw that men were gaining daily greater power, and their very prosperity made him angry. That young Titan, I will punish him. But before punishing Prometheus he decided to vex the children of... So, in that excerpt, and I apologize if the audio was difficult to understand, in that excerpt, 